Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. What can wine brands learn from the sex industry? A hell of a lot if Cindy Gallup is the one giving the advice. In a time when alcohol brands are facing increasing calls for moderation and abstinence, we sit down with the inimitable Cindy Gallup to explore how a platform like Make Love Not Porn is actively fighting to establish a healthy space for sex. From issues of funding, health, values, to communication, ageism, and aspirational marketing, this episode is a no-holds-barred look at the challenges and opportunities facing non-traditional industries. Oh, and if you stick to the end, Cindy shares some ideas for campaigns that could rock the wine world. Let's get into it. Cindy Gallup, I'm super excited to have you on today because everybody knows I'm a total fangirl. Um, and also you were very formative in me solving some of my business problems at a time when I really needed support and advice. So I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you, Polly. I'm thrilled to be here. All right. So I want to give a little bit of background because I think that when everybody hears the intro, they're going to be saying, what the hell is Polly thinking? Why is, why is Cindy on the Italian wine podcast? So I've got some notes. Um, in 1996, you helped start the Asia Pacific branch of BBH. And then in 1998, you became a really an adopted New Yorker in a way when you founded the U.S. branch of BBH. And during your tenure there, you worked on all sorts of campaigns, including the Diageo and the Johnny Walker campaigns for many years. Um, so you are very comfortable speaking about issues that happen in the alcohol industry. Yep, yep. And, and, and actually, Polly, I will just chip in and say that um, um, even before um, uh, BBH, um, I mean, I've worked on a number of alcohol brands over the years, and I've worked on you know t um, wine in the past and. I'm enormously interested in um, in this whole world, and I'm also um, currently a board advisor to female-founded gin liqueur company Pomp and Whimsy, which which continues to involve me very much in the alcohol industry and market. So um, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled you're tapping into all of that. Well, we're going to talk about Pomp and Whimsy, but first, I want to talk about 2009. You basically dropped a mic um, at what is a very well-known TED Talk, uh, where no holds barred, you launched your current enterprise, the one that we all know you for, which is Make Love, Not Porn. And, uh, and, and that's, really, that's really the impetus for me having you here today, because I think that there's so much that I see in the work that you're doing for Make Love, Not Porn that we can learn from with some of the issues we're facing in the alcohol industry right now. So just kind of tell us exactly what Make Love Not Porn is. Sure. Um, and I think it's important to tell our listeners that Make Love Not Porn first and foremost was an accident in the sense that I didn't consciously intentionally set out to do anything I bizarrely find myself doing now. And the general business lesson from that is 
always keep your eyes and ears open for opportunity that comes knocking, even when you had no idea that it might. So, um, you know, Make Love Not Porn came about through my direct personal experience dating younger men and realizing 14, 15 years ago that when we don't talk about sex openly and honestly in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. As a naturally action-oriented person, I decided to do something about this. And so 13 years ago, purely at the time as a little side venture, I put up on no money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just copy. The construct was porn world versus real world. I had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to launch it at TED in 2009. The talk went viral as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Thousands of people wrote to me from every country in the world, young and old, men and females, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out. I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so that was what led me to turn Make Love Not Porn into a business and what it is today, which is the world's first and only user-generated, human-curated, social sex video sharing platform. So we're what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which it sadly does not. If porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, we are the real world documentary. We are a unique window onto the funny, messy, loving, beautiful, fabulous ways we all have sex in the real world. We are socializing sex, bringing it out into the sunlight in order to promote consent communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. That's why our tagline is, make love not porn, pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And that's why we're spearheading what we call the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. It's the social part. So one of the things that I have found fascinating is your discourse very publicly around issues of funding because you work in sex and, and it, and I mean, work in pornography, but even at that, I feel a little bit uncomfortable using the language of pornography around what you're doing. Um, yeah, Perhaps yeah, I'm wrong on that. We're not porn. We're not porn. Yeah. You're not porn. Right. Mm. Um, but because you've got, you know, boobs and sex and sound and sight and the whole thing, when it comes to issues of capital, um, funding is very difficult. And I don't know, are you dealing with things like vice clauses? Is it just Puritans who feel like there's no place in the healthy world for sex? What are some of your funding challenges? Sure. So um, I have two challenges when it comes to raising funding. Um, the first one applies um, in the conventional VC investor world. And, you know, it is extraordinary that, uh, and, and I, sh I should emphasize for our audience, Polly, that ever since I launched Make Love Not Porn 13 years ago, we've had nothing but a universally positive response all around the world. Everybody needs us. Everybody knows how much they need us. And incidentally, an indication of how much that is the case and how big the opportunity with us is, is that every single day, people around the world search for us without knowing that we exist. And what I mean by that is the top organic search terms that drive people to make love, not porn are make love, not porn, real sex, not porn, 
make love not porn where people don't know there's a venture called that. One young man told me that he found us when he Googled porn that is not porn. He was so fed up with everything out there. He wanted something different. He had no idea what to search for. And when you Google porn that is not porn, you find make love not porn. So the world wants us. So um, as I said, two challenges. In the, in the conventional business world, and this is extraordinary because we are talking about the single area of universal human experience you can make more money out of than any other. So our challenge there is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Because it is never about what the investor in that world I'm talking to thinks. You know, when you understand what we're doing in Make Love a Porn and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It's always their fear of what they think other people will think, which operates around sex, unlike any other area. And in the VC world, there are too many stakeholders, you know, too many partners, too many LPs, fear of what other people will think. Um, is, is my, you know, barrier across the board in that case. So that's my first challenge. Um, but, but in a way, Polly, I have to say, I'm not altogether upset about that because um, in some ways I feel quite grateful to have a business whose investors are self-selecting because I have friends, especially female founders, with much more conventional businesses who have pitched and been rejected over 300 times. I don't know how they do it. As entrepreneurs, none of us needs to have any more thoroughly depressing meetings than we absolutely have to have. Okay, so no bad thing. Okay, so here's my second challenge, and then and then this is the especially um, frustrating one. I know that my investors are out there; they exist. There's a ton of them. They are impossible to find by the usual means because they all have one thing in common: your willingness to fund Make Love Not Porn is entirely a function of your personal sexual journey. It is a function of your personal lens on sex and sexuality, driven by your own experience, and I have no way to research and target for that, especially because sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. The people who look like they would totally get it don't, the people who look like total prudes do. And so for the past several years, my strategy has been, I put what I'm doing out there all the time. I promote Make Love Not Porn. I blow my own trumpet across all my social channels. I accept every media interview I'm invited to. I do every podcast interview like this one because I have to rely on putting what I'm doing out there and making those synaptic connections that will draw those people to me. And while this is, admittedly, a long, slow, painful process, the good news is that in the past couple of years, this has been happening more and more. Investors have reached out to me out of the blue saying, I saw your post about Make Love Not Porn on LinkedIn. I'm intrigued. Tell me more. And so, and so actually, um, because I'm just about to set out to raise a serious round of funding for Make Love Not Porn, literally the next couple of weeks, and I already have a list of people who've reached out who are waiting for my pitch deck, which I'm just finalizing now. So I have to tell you that, you know, given that I've spent 13 years parallel pathing two things, working to build Make Love Not Porn and working to change the cultural context around it. Because when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. 
And the good news is that work is finally paying off because the barriers are falling. And I feel more optimistic about going out there to raise $20 million than I ever have before. So one of the questions, um, it's interesting. I, I thought to come to this later, but it applies right now. I was discussing with one of my girlfriends, Pauline Vicard, who runs a think tank for fine wine, that I was uh, going to interview you. And she's done a lot of work around fine wine, health issues, temperance, social contracts, funding, the whole thing, because that's, that's very much her bailiwick. And the, the thing that she was most curious about is... How do you try to message or communicate this to a traditional consumer, right? To a traditional watcher, to the audience that needs to be changing how they're thinking without just losing them completely? How can we reframe it in a way that we can onboard the people who are a part of a current unhealthy, perhaps, structure and get them to understand why? a healthier, more positive alternative is really the way forward for our, you know, for the future of, in this case, society, kind of. So uh, the answer to that, Polly, is very simple. You don't. Okay. And the reason I say Damn. that, and the reason I say that is because, um, and, and, and bear in mind, um, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, my background is 37 years working in brand building, marketing, and advertising. And I've brought all of that to Make Love Not Porn, every part of which has been consciously intentionally designed. And anybody who watches my talks going back decades will know that, you know, through my advertising career and, and subsequently, one of my key philosophies is communication through demonstration. Don't tell, show, and be. And make love not porn is the ultimate demonstration of communication uh, of communication through demonstration because we are literally sex education through real world demonstration. Um, what we are, social sex videos, speaks for itself. We don't have to say anything. And so I'm going to read for your benefit and the benefit of our listeners just one email out of the many that we have been receiving every day from our members since we launched makelovenotporn.tv 10 years ago, that will show you not only exactly what I mean, but also how much as an utterly unique venture, we have an utterly unique capability. We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else does. So um, this is an email from a young man that we received. Um, um, this was a year before last. And I want to flag up something that was especially gratifying about this email, because separate to the fact that, as you will hear, it's extraordinary in terms of the impact we had. Um, I um, designed Make Love Not Porn, again, consciously intentionally, to be a mass market mainstream play. And the reason I say that is because in my world of sex tech, there are many ventures, and, and this is absolutely fine, which are aimed at a high-end affluent audience. You know, they're premium sex toys, you know. And I have been saying for years, and, and you know, um, extrapolate this place name out to whatever your local equivalent is, but, you know, my target audience for Make Love Not Porn is the horny 16-year-old boy in Minnesota. Because if we yeah. don't get him, he's going straight to Pornhub and staying there. So as you will hear from this email, this gentleman is a blue-collar worker, I mean, exactly um, the audience that I want to get to. 
So um, we received this email, which was headed, um, this has helped. And the email starts off, um, that this man says, <clears throat> so usually when people give feedback, they say, I don't normally do this. This is actually true for me to write an actual email. I apologize if I may be long. I found out about your website via a story on playboy.com. I'm 35 years old and a very single straight male working at a factory in a very small town in, and, and by the way, this is on, on our blog, but we always take out identifying details, but it's a small town in the American Midwest. As I've gotten older, the one thing I've felt that I've been missing is some type of connection when viewing porn. My habits have always been go to Pornhub, search a video, boom, done. That changed when I was watching one of the videos on here. I don't think I've ever seen something that I was so taken aback by. It was intimate. It was two people you saw an actual connection with. It made me question my own viewing habits right now, which is a good thing I feel in terms of growth. I also feel the need to speak about the need for males like myself to talk about how they feel. I feel like for the first time I want to confront my own issues with sex and my own sexual health, which in all honesty is not good at all. Dating has been non-existent for years, mainly due to me being so busy for most of my life with working three jobs to survive that I never really got a chance like I do now to try to understand why. All of this came about with your website. I'm very grateful to kind of start a new journey here, to try to understand myself more. I want to thank you guys for this. I feel like this has kind of been a nice wake-up call. Thanks again. Fuck me, right? Right. I mean, I mean, that is, Polly, the gobsmacking impact that Make Love Not Porn's utterly unique social sex content has. And that is only one example. I could read you many more emails about how we have changed people's lives. So again, this is my philosophy. You know, um, all you have to do is engage with our content and it changes your life. So one of the things that I want to talk about as we start to, to move this conversation into alcohol are issues of health and safety. Because I think that, and, and actually Gen Z, really, because I've raised two Gen Z daughters at a time when discussions around sex, pornography, but also alcohol and substance abuse have been real issues around your safety in the world because it had become so toxic really a, across both of the, the platforms. So I'm curious, um, in alcohol, we're seeing more moderation, more temperance. Are you seeing younger generations displaying similar or analogous behavior in their sexual behavior, their sexual choices, maybe later in life or just steering clear of it or all the way to kind of the toxic incel side of things? So, so first of all, um, Polly, um, I want to just respond to what you um, cited there about alcohol and the role it can play within um, sexual violence and um, rape and, and, and abuse. And um, I want our audience to understand um, exactly what Make Love Not Porn's mission is, um, because um, our, um, I have a very clear vision of um, what I want to achieve. And, um, and I'm about addressing these issues at their root cause. It's not about telling women to be careful and not, not get drunk. Okay. It's about making damn sure that men don't rape. Okay. And, and by the way, I extrapolate that out to everybody who is 
you know, vulnerable to any kind of assault, whatever. So, um, uh, you know, make love not porn, as I said, is spearheading the social sex revolution. We exist to make it easier for everyone in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. Now, because we don't do that currently, people don't get how massively, profoundly societally transformative that would be. And here's what I mean by that. I designed Make Love Not Porn around my own beliefs and philosophies, one of which is that everything in life starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question. What are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like them. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, a sense of responsibility, you know, accountability, a work ethic. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should, because in bed, values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we are actively taught to exercise them. So this is my vision for a world in which I get Make Love Not Porn funded to achieve our social mission at scale. When that happens, parents will bring their children up openly to have good sexual values and good sexual behavior in exactly the same way that parents currently bring kids up to have good values and behavior in every other area of life. We will therefore cease to bring up rapists because the only way that you end rape culture, and by the way, Polly, this really is the only way, is by embedding in society and openly talked about, promoted, understood, and very importantly, aspired to gold standard of what constitutes good sexual values and good sexual behavior. When we do that, we also end Me Too. We end sexual harassment, abuse, violence, all areas where the perpetrators currently rely on the fact that we do not talk about sex to ensure victims will never sleep up, never go to authorities, never tell anybody. When we end that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. When we do that, we create a far happier world for everybody, including men. And when we do that, we are one step closer to world peace. I talk about make love not pause, my technical about world peace, and I'm not joking. And so, you know, very simply, Polly, Make Love Not Porn helps to end rape culture by showing you how wonderful great consensual communicative sex is in the real world, our social sex videos role model, good sexual values and good sexual behavior, and we make all of that aspirational versus what you see in porn and popular culture. So, um, by the way, alcohol brands should absolutely be partnering with us and sponsoring us in this context. But I'm highly I'm highlighting I'm high this to our listeners because this is about tackling the root cause of what lies behind what you're concerned about and then making the right kind of behavior aspirational and giving audiences a reason to buy into that message. You know, I think it's enormously important that, that our audience understands that the way you really change people's behavior is by basically um, giving them a vision of what they could and should be doing and making that vision aspirational. And, and by the way, again, Polly, I'm talking about some very fundamental best practice principles of marketing and communications, okay? You know, um, again, you know, I bring from my background and especially my 16 years at BBA, you know, um, our creative philosophy 
Because at BBH, what, what we said was, we don't sell. We make people want to buy. And that's what you need to do in this arena. Don't sell, make people want to buy. Where I see this starts to move into some of the challenges we're having in alcohol right now um, is that we are very uncomfortable as alcohol communicators and marketers with open and healthy discussion around moderation, around healthy drinking, about a good relationship with something that, let's face it, is a bit of escapism. It makes us feel good. We've all been through two massive years. I deal with this all the time with my clients because I say, should we have some kind of language of moderation? And they're very afraid that the minute that they start talking about a healthy relationship with alcohol, that it's going to turn off consumers. So this is where I kind of want to move into you and the work that you've done yeah. historically and then Pomp and Whimsy, yeah. because one of the interesting things, and I, I note this for Pomp and Whimsy, you said the mostly male-led industry makes erroneous and outdated assumptions about the female consumer. Right. So, um, so, uh, so several responses to your question, um, Polly. First of all, it's interesting because... so. Um, uh, and just filling in the context here for the benefit of our listeners. So um, when Make Love Not Porn um, took off, um, I was actually working on my first startup, If We Ran the World. And I had to back burn it if we ran the world when Make Love Not Porn blew up, because even I, superhuman as I am, cannot run two startups simultaneously. Um, however, um, I very much hope one day to reactivate If We Ran the World, because um, I get a lot of interest in it, especially as um, 12 months into operating, if we ran the world, um, a professor from Harvard Business School reached out to me and said, this model is so unique and innovative. We want to write, if we ran the world, up as a case study and teach it at Harvard. And so if we ran, I had this very surreal experience of sitting in the back of a lecture theater at Harvard, listening to my startup being taught. Um, and, and if we ran the world exists as a Harvard Business School case study. And um, but very simply, um, what If Around the World is, is, you know, I'm, um, I'm a great advocate in my business speaking of design your own business model. And, you know, I live my own philosophies. And so I believe the business model of the future is shared values plus shared action equals shared profit, financial profit and social profit. And what I mean by that is when brands and businesses come together with their audiences, and by audiences, you know, I mean consumers, employees, analysts, you know, any audience, on the basis of values that you all share, which, by the way, is the most important requirement for a good relationship in life as much as business. You will never truly bond with someone who doesn't share the same values. So when you come together on the basis of shared values, and when you are then all enabled to collectively and collaboratively co-act on those values to walk the talk together, you can then make things happen in the real world that will benefit consumers, benefit society, and benefit the brand and its business. So if we ran the world as co-action software designed to enable brands to implement this business model. And the reason I'm sharing this is because um, we engaged um, in a dialogue many years ago um, with um, Diageo about the fact that I saw a very interesting way to um, make this platform and this model work in the context of responsible drinking. And, and you know, I, I say that because um, 
uh, we um, I actually gave this um, as um, uh, a brief to an advertising school over here in the US, um, uh, VCU Brand Center. And um, I mean, I already had this concept and the students helped help kind of uh, flesh it out. But um, I, um, I, I want to share this with you and your audience because I think you'll find this useful. So, so first of all, you know, this was about um, um, one of the quickest ways to make people think differently about anything is to change the language around it. And so, you know, our recommendation was, you know, um, responsible drinking just sounds so dreary. You know, nobody likes the word responsibility. Oh, God, who wants to be responsible? So um, we, and I absolutely credit the students um, for this, came up with um, a new term, which was um, drink respectfully. So, so this program is about pioneering the concept of, you know, respect the drink and drink respectfully. And, and the interesting thing about this, Bonnie, was um, that um, this was about... Um, uh, um, we recommended making this program occasion specific, okay? Because no matter how much anybody loves alcohol, all of us know that there are occasions when getting off your head is not a good idea, okay? And those occasions are, you know, the night before a really important business meeting, you know, your performance review with your boss, or the big presentation you've got to do to somebody, you know, or during um, a first date, okay? You're out with somebody that you are really clicking with. The last thing you want to do is become a sloppy mess. Okay. So wait, if, hold on. Can I just can I just interrupt yeah. to say yeah. something? Because I'm dying to get this into a podcast, or like my husband did quite accidentally the night before your first child is born. You know, oh my god! There it, you go. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, so, so this is the thing, Polly. You know, um, you know, nobody will disagree at all with the fact that there are absolutely occasions when you do not want to get drunk, okay? So, um, so, um, so that, that, that was the uh, first principle. And the second principle was, um, because uh, as I've spelled out, if we ran the world is all about um, co-action, okay? You know, um, and, and the reason for that is that if we ran the world, um, it's built around the concept of micro-actions. And again, I've, I've been talking about, this is my philosophy for years. I believe change happens in the bottom up, not the top down. When every one of us every day undertakes microactions, and microactions are tiny, small, simple, easy to do actions, so easy to do, why wouldn't you do them? Every one of us taking microactions every single day to change what we want to see change cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. So this program that we, you know, we're in dialogue with Diageo about was built around the concept of microactions. But um, which you and your friends and your network and your colleagues take. But importantly, we made these microactions through If We Ran the World enormously fun to take. Um, so, um, uh, for example, you know, um, th th this is where, you know, um, to, I mean, imagine you are a university student, okay? And you're obviously enjoying going out with your friends drinking, but you've got that really important job interview tomorrow. And you really need to turn up in top form. Okay. So, you know, um, the, um, basically, um, the night before, um, you, you invite your friends. Uh, and again, the If We Around the World platform mechanism made this really easy to do. Um, you, um, you basically ask your friends to help with this. You know, this is a collaboratively 
collaborative collective exercise where anybody can go, listen, guys, you know, this is happening tomorrow and I need your help tonight. You know, I'm going to have a couple of drinks, but I just need need not to go overboard. So then um, basically your friends can create microactions. And again, because if Randall was a community platform um, with a program like this, um, you know, working with our alcohol brand partner, we would generate our own microactions, which we can be inspired by, and the community can contribute their own. And, you know, to, um, this was when, way back in the day, a couple of friends of mine had launched an amazing platform that still operates today called Text From Last Night, um, which was very simply user-generated. People could upload, you know, their text messages that they and their friends sent from last night. I love this platform, hysterical. So, um, so, so one of these microactions that we proposed was inspired by a text from last night where somebody went, which one of you bastards switched out all the cash in my wallet with Monopoly money so I couldn't buy drinks at the bar? So, you know, that's a microaction you can take. You know, you're helping your friend, but oh my God, the prank hysterical laughter value when what you do is you quietly, you know, switch out all their cash for monopoly money so they can't buy themselves anybody else any more drinks. So that's what I mean by macro actions that are fun to take. And so, and so this becomes, as I said, very importantly, anchored in this incontrovertible fact, which is occasion specific. It becomes of social benefit because you are helping in this scenario, you know, and it becomes a really, really fun thing to do. So um, when I say we don't sell, we make people want to buy, that's what I'm talking about. Drink, drink respectably, drink respectfully instead of responsibly and, and make it really fun and make it really practical and applicable. And by the way, you know, I am available and if we around the world is available to activate this program with someone prepared to fund, you know, our ability to reactivate the platform, make it happen. So that's the first thing. Um, you know, um, the, the, the second thing I would say, um, is um, what we don't have um, at the moment, but which I think it would be very easy for any alcohol brand to partner to do, is we don't have um, enough public role models about how you can tailor very different individual approaches to drinking. Okay? And, and I say this because... Um, I um, have had occasion to engage in this conversation within my networks, and particularly, by the way, my, my, my female net friend networks, um, where, you know, as you say, Polly, the past couple of years and the trauma the world has been through with the pandemic have driven a lot of people to examine their drinking. Uh, and that is why also I believe the world is more receptive to these sorts of messages than ever before now. And so, and so here's my own, own approach. I am somebody who enormously enjoys drinking, you know, my favorite cocktails and martini. Um, but I'm also somebody whose alcohol tolerance is not that high. Okay. You know, I get drunk very easily, possibly something to do with being half Chinese. Um, and, and I've always known that, you know. And so, and, and also I'm 62. And so as I get older, I absolutely notice that my, you know, alcohol tolerance is diminishing even more. And that I, you know, and, and, and my, you know, I can wake up not feeling great the next morning on very little alcohol. You know, one and a half martinis, as I had, you know, the other evening, and I wake up not feeling great the next day. Um, so um, I, my own personal approach to how I manage my alcohol intake is, 
you know, first of all, for decades, um, I I never ever drink on my own at home alone. You know, I'm mildly paranoid about that being a slippery slope. Um, my personal rule has always been that I only drink um, when I'm socialising with other people. You know? Now, obviously, pre-pandemic, there have been phases when I've socialised with other people a lot, like every evening for two weeks, you know. But nevertheless, that, that was my personal rule. Then during the pandemic, um, obviously, if I stuck to it, I would never drink at all. So, um, you know, because I was in lockdown in my apartment here in New York for one and a half years. And so I changed that to, you know, I am allowed to make cocktails at home. Um, but, you know, um, I'm going to restrict that to just at the weekends. You know, during the week, I'm not going to do this. But at the weekend, I'll absolutely um, have a cocktail. And, um, and, and generally speaking, it was only one cocktail, which was quite enough for me to, you know, lightweight as I am, to feel pleasantly subtle. Um, and um, th- then we emerged from the pandemic. So I'm now back to my I only drink when I'm socializing um, w- with other people. But um, that is just one very individual approach. What I've never seen is a campaign showcasing a whole host of individual approaches. You know, because all we ever hear in terms of public stories told are people who've given up drinking completely. But by the way, that could also be a part of this. But what you don't get is a whole range of role models where it makes it really easy for somebody to pick an approach that fits with the way that they like to live their, their life and go, oh, I never thought about doing it like that, but actually what she's talking about, I could very easily adapt to, you know, how I live my life. So that's, so that's something I thought. The one thing though, that I find very interesting that I'd love for us to kind of dive into has to do with the communication to grown women around alcohol, which also happens at a time when those same grown women are finding because of menopause or premenopause that they cannot drink the same amount that they used to. How does how does an industry reconcile that? That we need to speak to these audiences, but then we also have the World Health Organization coming out and saying that any woman of reproductive years has no business drinking. We've got lesser uh, lesser alcohol consumption uh, standards for women, as in literally the the quantities that are safe drinking for women are far less than they are for men. So it seems like just from sheer biology, we have a challenge talking to women and we have a bigger challenge talking to grown women who have the money and the know-how to be good consumers. Um, So again, Polly, I go back to my principle of communication through demonstration. Um, You solve that very simply and you kill two birds with one stone. You solve that simply by, by having a campaign that is a range of women who are menopausal or older, women like me, as I said, talking about their individual approach to managing their alcohol intake. And then not only do you present women with a whole range of different approaches, and, and again, I stress the campaign, the vignettes, the, because I think a range is really important. A range says, you know, um, is respectful. It says you can make your individual choice, but also you will break down the prejudice against talking about menopause by by actively welcoming into this campaign menopausal women. Okay, and and, and I have to tell you, Polly, that would be enormously powerful because, um, for the benefit again of, of our listeners, um, first of all, um, 
you know, as Polly knows, um, I have been combating ageism again for decades. I'm very vocal about all manner of aspects in which I live my life because I consider myself a proudly visible member of the most invisible segment of our society, which is older women. I want to help change through the way I live my life, again, communication through demonstration, what society thinks an old woman should talk like, work like, be like, and quite frankly, date like. And and so um, a couple months back, I was asked to participate in a wonderful interview series on, on YouTube, Instagram, et al., um, run by a brand called Style Like You. And Style Like You is run by a mother-daughter team, Elisa and Lily, who have an interview series called What's Underneath. And in this interview series, they ask individuals and couples um, to basically sit on a stool and answer questions that Elisa and Lily ask them. And as each person answers each question, they take an item of clothing off. Because the whole idea is that both literally and metaphorically, you strip down to what's underneath. So they asked me to participate in a segment of this series that was called Defying Ageism. So at the age of 62, I took all my clothes off, down to my underwear, while answering a number of questions about my approach to life, love, relationships, you know, et cetera. And I have to tell you that I was completely blown away by the extraordinary response to my interview. First of all, I went viral on TikTok. And, and by the way, I'm not on TikTok, but Starlight used clip of me on TikTok. The last time I looked, it has 4.4 million views on TikTok. And a whole host of Gen Zers and millennials basically took my, my clip and, and created their own versions. There are 900 versions of my interview on TikTok, which shows you, by the way, how much um, old women can role model for young people. And the comments on YouTube, on TikTok, on Instagram are extraordinary. There are so many young women, especially saying, oh, my God, I am desperate for older female role models, strong, confident women expressing surprising, unheard views. In fact, there was one comment on Instagram, um, the video that I found very moving. A woman said, imagine if we had all grown up seeing and hearing women talk and live like this, think how very different our lives will be now. That's the answer, communication through demonstration. We see that all the time with brands. We're working with um, a big American brand right now on uh, some communication where it is very much directed to younger women. And one of our early recommendations was you need to go out and you need to find the older women to match with them. And you can even see it on social media. Like an example that I love is a woman named Batty Winkle, whose tagline is stealing your man since 1928, you know, and she is phenomenal for actually showing all of us. It's not just young women. It's showing all of us, you know what? I don't have to age like my grandmother did. I I can still have an absolutely rockin' mm. life at 85. Mm. And in, in fact, in terms of aspiration and the decisions I make right now, that has profound impact on what are my health choices? How do I dress? How do I speak? How do I move? What do I drink? The whole thing. Well, exactly. What you and the alcohol industry have the opportunity to do is something that I've been talking about again for years, which is reinvent aspirational culture. And you kill several birds with one stone because when you create this campaign um, that features a range of older women talking about how they manage their alcohol intake, you will impact younger women and men as well. 
Um, because, um, to, uh, you know, again, I've been saying for years, the actual industry and every industry makes the enormous mistake of thinking that we older people aspire to be young. We don't. Younger people aspire to be us. Because at this age, we don't give a fuck about anything. We don't give a damn what anybody thinks. At this age, we've learned what really matters. In relationships, in life, we have our own sense of personal style. We have our own sense of home style. We have the freedom to travel, to be whoever we want to be. By the way, and we are starting businesses at the fastest rate of any age group. Okay, younger people find all of that incredibly aspirational. Tap into the aspiration of age. What a total missed opportunity nobody is taking. And when you do that, you kill several birds with one stone in terms of creating huge social benefit for the alcohol industry. I, I agree completely. So um, I have a couple last questions, kind of short ones for you. Um, International Women's Day. What are our thoughts on this? Because I have to tell you, as, as a, a founder myself and a successful female, I get kind of frustrated. I, I remember being at USC in 1992, and it was the year that the Oscars called themselves the Year of the Woman in 1992. And we're still pulling this kind of shit. Like, what do we think about the brands who are rocking out with their International Women's Day campaigns? Is this good for us? Is this bad for us? So, so my LinkedIn post um, on, on um, International Women's Day has been extraordinarily popular. And um, I'm just going to check on how many um, views it's had because it is clocking them up um, like you would not believe. Um, because um, um, so our audience knows um, um, what I said, um, and, uh, and I post this on LinkedIn, but I also posted, I mean, I posted the same thing all over my social channels. But I basically said, on International Women's Day and every other day, don't use words like empower and celebrate. Use words like hire, promote, pay, raise, bonus, fund, invest in, enrich, give equity, elect and lead, and don't just say it, do it. And at the moment, my post to date, um, and this was Tuesday, has had um, just under 1.6 million views on LinkedIn, and a ton of shares, and a ton of comments. And um, you know that um, th um, that really, um, uh, for me, is what International Women's Day needs to be about, which is don't just celebrate and empower women on one day of the year. Every other day of the year, make damn sure you're hiring us, you're promoting us, you're paying us, you're championing us, you are rewarding us, you're bonusing us. You know, don't say it, do it. So that is the perfect segue to the one question I will ask you that has to do with business advice, which is you have a motto that is even embroidered on a sweater. And that all of us, I think, who've gone through any kind of coaching with you know what that is. So if you had one piece of advice for not just women in wine, but women in any industry, what is it? Sure. Well, to, well, what Polly's alluding to everybody is that I have a sweater that says, fuck you, pay me. And so my advice is absolutely always remember that people value you at the value you are seen to put on yourself. 
And in that context, the amount you ask for is always the highest amount you can say out loud without actually bursting out laughing. And trust me, it works. Because literally every week, I hear from women who write to me and say, Cindy, I did it and I got it. Thank you so much. I really value that you gave up an hour, you tolerated a bad connection, and you came and shared all of that wisdom with us. I'm so grateful. Absolutely, Polly. And you know, as I said, my consultancy services are available to anybody in your industry. And I'm also available to Cameo in the campaign we talked about to ensure that people think about alcohol in a different way and aspire to better behaviors. I love it. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Cindy Gallup for joining us this week. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcast in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.